Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome back Jason Gottlieb, a partner at Morrison Cohen LLP, where he chairs the Digital Assets Group and the White Collar and Regulatory Enforcement Practice Groups. Jason is the principal author of the MoCo Cryptocurrency Litigation Tracker, which I highly recommend you read, and was named to the National Law Journal's inaugural list of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and fintech trailblazers. Jason and the MoCo Digital Assets team is also now Chambers Ranked for Crypto Disputes, as well as blockchain and crypto more generally. So congrats, Jason and team, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jacob. It's really great to be back with you. I really love this podcast. I'd love to start with with Refco. And for me coming in, I'm more in the early stages of my career. So I'm learning about the history that we've seen when it comes to corporate frauds and, and collapses and things. And so I saw your tweet and it caught my eye and it was, for anyone tempted to say that the FTX collapse wouldn't have happened if crypto companies were registered, let me tell you why I didn't sleep for months on end in 2005, 2006. And then you mentioned Refco. Could you explain the story here? Sure. So Refco was a broker dealer that went bankrupt in, in, if I recall, October 2005. And some of this is hazy details lost to memory over the years, but also probably because, you know, I was uh, uh, billing 350 or 400 hours a month for a few months straight. Refco blew up and it turned out that some of the people at the top were, had been committing criminal fraud, essentially taking what was supposed to be customer money that should have been in, in the, the customer's accounts. And they were taking that money, lending it out affiliates, and they, they were trading with that money and they lost a bunch of it. And then at some point, the reckoning came. So th this was a regulated entity. And you can see some of the parallels to the allegations about FTX. And of course, those are, are just allegations, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what what comes out in, in the investigations and the, and the bankruptcy proceeding. But it, it seems that from just what we've seen in the press, there are some uh, real parallels here. And I guess the, the lesson of that, and it's, it's at this point, almost a shibboleth in the crypto community about FTX, is fundamentally the FTX blow up is not a story about cryptocurrency. It's a story about fraud. And the idea that I think some regulators take from FTX is, see, this just shows you why everything in crypto is bad and dirty and we need to regulate it out of existence. But, you know, nobody said after Refco blew up, well, this just goes to show you that the securities industry is bad and dirty and we should regulate it out of existence. You know, there, there obviously were additional regulations that were put in place a few years later after the collapse in 2008. We then saw the Dodd-Frank financial reforms come into effect. 
So nobody's ever saying that, you know, something shouldn't be regulated or couldn't be regulated in a smarter way. The point I was making there is just being regulated does not prevent blowups. We we have blowups and, and criminal activity that happens, you know, unfortunately fairly regularly in the mainstream financial world. But nobody suggests, well, you know, let's just hang it all up and, and uh, go back to bartering onions and corn for <laughs> for our financial system. It's interesting to see the parallels throughout history when you look at the financial markets compared to crypto. And it's almost as if crypto has compressed everything that we've seen over the past hundreds of years into such a short time frame. Yeah, we. I sometimes joke that that the crypto community is speed running four hundred years of corporate governance and and financial market development. You know, even the experimentation with the the DAO form, uh, which is something that I, I really love. I love the energy and the experimentation. We should always be trying to figure out if there's a better way to do something, uh, depending on what that something is. But a lot of that experimentation, you know, was done in the past, and after four hundred years we kind of settled on the corporate forms that we have. Now, you know, on the one hand, that's advocacy for understanding the lessons of the past to understand why things are the way they are and and taking the good parts from the past. But that's, you know, ultimately a super conservative mindset to say, well, just because we're we're here where we are and we've gotten here through a lot of pain, we should just keep things exactly as they are because this this is the best we can do. That that's certainly not the case. You know, ultimately I'm I'm an optimist and I'm a, a progressive uh, at heart. So I think that there's always ways that we can and should be improving our systems. That's particularly true when we talk about what I think is is a, a fundamental revolution in how to think about certain financial instruments. And that, that's what cryptocurrency is. It, it just is technologically fundamentally different from securities or cash or commodities. And I think that ignoring those fundamental differences is going to lead to some real disconnects in the law, and it's going to lead to some some trouble. Yeah, and it's very obvious when you just think about how crypto projects can iterate, how you could fork a protocol, and now the SEC might consider you are now offering an unregistered security to people. And to have such broad rules encapsulate something this novel seems to me to be pretty obvious that we do need new rules. And, And you mentioned DAOs, and I'd love to talk a bit more about structuring DAOs. But before we do that, one thing I want to start asking people a bit more is why crypto? And not necessarily why you first got into it, but what keeps you in the crypto space and and what makes you bullish on the future and, and what the potential of this technology holds because I think it's important to revisit these when you think about all the negative sentiment that can be shared and then you see the collapse and fraud that that has occurred in the space. Are there things that come to mind to you that really keep you in the space? Yes. I mean, I, I think that, you know, when you when you talk about, you know, collapses or fraud, I think it's important to acknowledge that the last year has frankly been a pretty tough year in the crypto community. We've seen a, a lot of frauds. We've seen a lot of collapses that have nothing to do with fraud, just market forces. And a lot of that is combined to make the crypto markets sag, at least in terms of the, the total value of all tokens out there. But in my mind, crypto and digital assets are not remotely represented by the total value of all tokens that are out there. That's a number that is, is in my mind, pretty meaningless. It's, it's important to the folks who are 
you know, trading these tokens in, in kind of speculative hopes of making some profits from them. But fundamentally, what keeps me in this space is the interesting things that you can do with technology. And that seems very broad, right? But but it is a broader kind of idea, right? It's just the nature of digital assets as a whole, right? Increasingly, our lives are surrounded by digital assets, right? Our communications are a stream of digital encodings. Our public personas are, are digital with, you know, all of your, your online profiles, our entertainment is digital. Our money is digital. Even the, the base physical elements of our lives, like your clothes, your food, the, the house over your over your roof, you know, you order you order food on Seamless through a system of digital encodings. You you buy your clothes at, at you know gap.com or or you know you you do if you're uh, you know. uh, more fashionable more fashionable than I am. I, I get I get them at lowrentclothes.com. I don't know. Everything is becoming digitized and everything is represented by digital apps. Assets. Um, that's separate from crypto. That's broader than blockchain. There's a, a fundamental change that is happening with the, the digitization of everything in our lives. Crypto is kind of the most immediately obvious application of it. I mean, frankly, as soon as you can, uh, as soon as there's some new invention, somebody's going to figure out how to financialize. That's that. That's what happened first here, and that's and that's fine. It's just that's just what happens. But the fact that you can build things and you can build infinite things to me is what's fascinating and what keeps me in this space. So it's not just a question of the essential, the, the, the bricolage of the financial markets, right? You take one financial instrument and software makes it easy to combine those financial instruments. And we see that happening all the time. And what, what is, what is a, a DEX that allows perps trading other than, you know, little bricks of different financial instruments put together in a certain way? You're soon going to see these bricks combined across digital asset classes, right? Across communications and your persona and your entertainment and your money, all of this can be combined in, in fascinating ways. And software makes it all easy and very cost efficient to start up. You talked about forking a protocol. I mean, think about the, the power of this, right? If you wanted to fork a, a DEX you, you could. You could just start your own decks and, and most of the code is open source. So you could just go ahead and do it. I mean, think about what kind of power that is. Like what if, if today I could say, you know, something HSBC is cool. It's a good bank and all, but I'm just going to launch HSBD and I'm going to have all the same stuff, but I'm going to have a few extra features that I want. Like if you have the power to do that, then you, you truly have immense amounts of power to recreate and reshape a society. Now, that power is not necessarily all a good thing, right? If I could snap my fingers and, and recreate an entire global international bank and then pretend like, okay, uh, you know, I don't have, I have the banking, but I don't have any of the licenses or registration or compliance personnel, and I'm just going to go off and do some banking stuff. I mean, that, that, you know, again, you go back to 400 years of, of corporate governance to figure out, like, maybe that's not such a great idea. So we need to combine this amazing ability to create new things with all of these bricks that we have, with new ways of thinking about how to regulate and how to have legal frameworks around them. The, the one thing that I absolutely know will not work is to look at these this new amazing technology 
and just say, well, you know, we've worked for 400 years. We've got all these great rules. It's worked for all this time. Why don't we just, why don't we just use the, the same rules? I mean, to me, that that's sort of like, we'll put it this way. Quinn comes out, you know, in, in 2008, you see the, the, the Satoshi White Paper. Right. So now we're, we're, we're what, you know, 25 years past that. I can't count. Imagine 15 years past that. Like my Lord, I can't count. 23. So 20, eight, 15, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 15. Yeah, give or take, depending what dates you look at. Hi, I'm a, I'm a high, t- I'm a high tech lawyer. I specialize in, uh, okay. But, but imagine this, right? The first, the first model T's are rolling off the, the assembly lines in the early 1900s, 1903, 1904, somewhere around there. Imagine if 15 years later, you were the Secretary of Transportation, if such a thing existed back then. It, it did not. We did not have a department. But just imagine if you were, and you said, you know something, I understand that these new, you know, new gasoline-powered cars are, are flooding our streets, but we don't need any new rules. We don't need any new infrastructure. Like, you know, this, this, the roads have worked for our horses and buggies for 100 years, and they'll work just fine for cars. Like, if we chosen that as a regulatory framework, it would have choked off a century worth of development. I think that, you know, standing now and saying that, that all the current regulations are, are perfectly fine and we don't need to think about that is, is exactly the same. We're dealing with a fundamental technological revolution. And, you know, if we don't somehow adapt to it, then we're going to lose it. It's going to go offshore. It's going to, it's going to be run by people who take steps to stay at non. If we want to embrace this future, we need to grapple with it. Otherwise, we're going to lose it. And it is such a difficult dynamic because the financial industry especially is so heavily re- relegate, regulated for a good reason, because they've seen collapses throughout history and, and problems throughout history and then made rules to avoid those repeating themselves. But now when you add this digital asset, which largely has been been speculative in nature so far, you're fitting into those same boxes. But at the same time, that's not everything digital assets are. So it's easy to to see where the regulators are coming from in that same sort of product, same regulation. But it you need to be able to take that next step and say, okay, but this isn't the sole purpose. It's not just speculation, just like when automobiles were first created. Speculation, I believe, came before the Model T started rolling out. People started betting on all these. There were thousands of car companies in the U.S., ended up getting regulation and things got much better in the long run because of that. So hopefully we'll follow the the Model T and the automobile trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I'm certainly not one of those people who says you can't regulate, you shouldn't, or you can't regulate any of this stuff. A regulation's a mistake. Again, I think, as you said, you know, you've got these powerful, essential powerful financial instruments. So to say they should be completely unregulated is, is really to ignore, you know, the history we've had in the, in the crash of 29 and, and the, the crash of 2008. But the, the question is always, I, I guess, if you're, if you're always looking to the past, you're missing what's coming in the future. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what regulation do we need going forward? What's the smartest, best regulation for this particular instrument? And you know, that's that's something that obviously a, a lot of people are, are grappling with in in good faith, I, I will say. But it's there there are some genuinely hard questions in that because we we don't know yet what the technology is going to be. So it's hard to regulate for the technology of today because by next year it could be different. So you end up having to come up with principles that could work. And it it, is actually quite a challenge. And it's so difficult when you bring in the money laundering component as well, because now you have something that can be valuable and the freedom to move it anywhere is is almost limitless when, when you think about it. And so trying to impose rules on something like that, 
I, that's going to be difficult. It is. There, there's, there is a fundamental tension on that exact point, right? We want, and, and I, when I say we, I'll, I'll just, maybe I'll just say me, I want, but we, everyone should want the ability to have a degree of financial privacy. Right. It's nobody else's business, you know, whether I, I, you know, went to the sandwich shop or the pizza place for lunch. Like that should be my own private decision. And that's kind of an absurd thing because you'd think, well, who cares about that? And probably no one. No one's going to care. And that's why I'm I'm not particularly worried about using my credit card at the sandwich shop and leaving a, a permanent permanent immutable record that I, I ate at that sandwich shop for lunch. Who cares? But you can very easily see where that goes awry. You know, if you're making a donation to the religious organization of your choice, that is a, a minority religious organization, you know, maybe you don't want your neighbors to know you go to that that church or that temple, that mosque. If you are a woman who's saving up money to escape an abusive relationship, you want to be able to save that privately in a way that your husband isn't going to find out. If you were a, a woman living in a state that does not allow legal abortions and you want to travel to a state that does, you you want to be able to pay for that in a way that's not going to subject you to legal trouble in the state that, that, that you're in. So you could very quickly get to applications where financial privacy are extraordinarily important. And I think we would think that it's, it's a societal good to protect people's privacy. On the other hand, governments can never allow complete financial privacy. They just can't. And money laundering, as, as you correctly identified, is the reason why not. If you say that anyone can do any financial transactions privately, then you're allowing people to you know, wash the proceeds from running drugs, running guns, running people, smuggling nuclear secrets. And these are things that, that a government simply cannot allow. So you're going to have a struggle between these axes to try to figure out where there can be compromises. We've mostly gone to compromises in the current system that we have because you know any transactions over a certain amount have to be reported. And let's face it, most people are not likely to be carrying around a million dollars in, in cash and in you know green paper bills or or whatever colors they might come in in Canada. Right, Car carrying around a, a few hundred thousand loonies in, in a bag or something. Nobody's going to do that. It's just not physically able, convenient to do that. But of course, you know, moving a few hundred thousand dollars or a few million dollars in crypto, you, you can do with a few keystrokes. So there's going to be a tension between governments trying to take action to prevent the truly bad stuff. But it is truly difficult to figure out how to stop the truly bad stuff uh, without also stopping a bunch of stuff that you didn't want to stop. Yep. And we're, we're going to be struggling with this for, for the next decade, three decades. I don't know how long. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, you, you put it very eloquently. It's that fundamental tension between the two dynamics that are at play. And, and one I wanted just to touch on more substantively is DAOs. And, and you've tweeted a bit about DAOs. You've spoken about DAOs before and how structuring a DAO with the U.S. nexus could have serious tax issues and regulatory issues as well. From a theoretical perspective, what do you think of DAO members' liability? 
what do you think it should be and and where do you see it falling within the current scheme now so you know it's every lawyer's favorite two words it depends and you know i i should start by saying i'm involved in a number of dow related litigations right now in 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 which everyone loves throwing my words back in my face you know when i write an article that says a dow could be held responsible in theory for xyz they they quote that back at me to say aha even you admit that your dow is liable and i'm like guys, come on. It depends. Every lawyer's favorite two words. So first you have to talk about what any particular DAO is, right? As we all know, you know, every single organization in the world is, is more or less decentralized. It's more or less autonomous and it's more or less organized. So just calling something a DAO doesn't particularly actually mean that it's a decentralized autonomous organization. There are plenty of dinos out there, DAO in name only, so if you have a true DAO, something that is, is really widely dispersed, where governance is dispersed, control is dispersed, it can be very much ground up, it seems wildly implausible to me that you would stick anyone who votes on the DAO, much less anyone who holds a governance token with liability over the entirety of the DAO. That just seems insane to me. It seems as if, you know, if there was open source software, let, let's say Microsoft decides to open source Excel, they say we're using it, it belongs to the community now, here's, you know, every single Excel user gets an Excel token, and you can all do what you want with it, we're out, see ya, bye. It seems insane that if, you know, a group of people use Excel to keep track of their drug profits from their drug gang in, you know, in one city in the world, that every single other user of Microsoft Excel around the world would some suddenly be responsible for that as a joint and several partner, joint and several liable partner in a partnership. That just makes no sense whatsoever. That, that's not the law in, the, in America. That's never been the law in America. You know, on the other hand, if you have, you know, a group of three people who say we're a DAO and, you know, but they control it, they, they each control a third of it. They take all the activities. They actually control the platform. You know, the law is much more likely to say, guys, come on, you're, you're a general partnership, but you're, you're, you've come together for, you know, the sharing of profits and losses for this business enterprise. Each state has its different definitions of, of what a partnership is going to be, but you can see that that would be a partnership. So when you're trying to figure out, okay, well, is the DAO liable? You have to figure out, you have to think like, what is the DAO and who actually at the end of the day should be liable for anything? You know, fundamentally, and we, we spoke a little bit about this, I think, you know, before we were recording, crypto is a very internationalistic community. There are people all over the world that have their, they live in their own countries and they follow their own laws and norms and rules and regulations. And it would seem absolutely crazy to say that, you know, some, some you know, 20-year-old in France who once voted to change the background color of his favorite web front end to his favorite decks, that, that he wanted to change the, the color scheme from blue to green, is all of a sudden, you are a voting member of the DAO, and because the DAO violated the law in some country you're not in, we can come after you for joint and several liability damages for everything that the DAO has done. I mean, that seems insane. And if that takes root, in the law, which I strongly don't think that it will, but if that were to take root, it would be disastrous for, for, for DAOs as a whole and the experimentation in corporate form that they allow. Nobody is suggesting that people who actually do 
illegal things should be allowed to get away with it, right? If you are, you know, if you are a, a company that is committing crimes or that is violating the securities laws or the commodities laws, and you are organized as an ink, then you can be held responsible for that. If you are the same thing, you're just organized as a DAO, then you can still be held responsible for it. But it's important in a DAO to try to figure out, okay, who are the actual people that we're concerned about here and not sweep in everyone or to punish people for participating in the organization. And I think regulators have to step very carefully to make sure that in pursuing the valid goals that they have, they're not accidentally stomping out more interesting forms of corporate experimentation that really could be put to great use. And from a litigator's perspective, you always are looking for someone who's liable, right? These rules we have today are based on principles regarding liability, where there will, it will be, it is someone's fault that something went wrong and we want to find out who that is and we want to prove that it was X or Y or Z. And so when you think of a DAO that could be running protocols that might not be registered or might fall within certain frameworks, what would happen if you wanted just to go after the DAO itself as its own entity rather than the members underlying the DAO? Would that require a legal wrapper for the DAO or what would that look like, Jason? Well, you know, so, so it's, the interesting part about a DAO is that, you know, other than a few states that have formally provided a, a DAO form like Wyoming and I, I believe Vermont, and for, forgive me, I don't have a complete list in my head. Other than that, if it's just sort of an informal business organization, I mean, there, there are laws that cover informal business organizations, and we can apply that law to try to figure out, you know, who might be responsible. And there are, are there are some pretty good examples of cases you know, one way or the other, depending again on facts. So, you know, there, I believe there's a case involving, you know, a, a street gang, you know, it's a, a bunch of guys who hang out on the corner and nobody was quite sure, you know, who's sort of a member of the gang or not, but they want to go after, you know, the, the sixth street gang, just to take an example, and they want to shut down that gang, but it, they don't really know who, who all the members are. They're just trying to target the gang. Okay, that, that's one approach. There was another case that involved, you know, all of the NFL owners who were you know, judged to be acting sort of collectively for sharing profits and losses. Okay, that's an identifiable group of people that with, with you know, good parameters, you can, you can draw a nice circle around that. But the, the problem with DAOs and liability is that people can drift in and out of them, right? I can, I, if I wanted to be a member of, you know, one DAO, I can buy their token, uh, maybe, and then sell it five minutes later. So for the five minutes I held that one token, am I suddenly, you know, jointly and severally liable for everything that the DAO has ever done? That That seems absolutely preposterous. But I guess if you get closer to the center, you know, I'm the person who programmed this, I put it out, I'm still running it, I'm controlling it, then you you might look to somebody who could be more said to be more liable. If you look at a, a example with corporate forms today, right, let's say a company does something wrong, you know, the, the take an example, the, the Disney Corporation stole someone's intellectual property and made a movie about it. I'm just I'm just kidding. This never happened. Please don't get mad at me, Disney. But let's just say that it did, you know, you could sue Disney Inc. 
and the corporate form protects the people involved. You know, if the people involved were acting, you know, under their under their, their corporate auspices, they've got the the beneficiaries, their beneficiaries of a corporate shield, and you know, the corporation can get in trouble and maybe protect the the people involved. And that that's not always the case, but it it, it can be. With a DAO, you don't have that official corporate form. As as my friend Miles Jennings from A16Z has said, there is a risk that if you as a DAO don't choose your corporate form, the government is going to choose it for you. And it could be the government and it could be plaintiff's lawyers who, who come out and, and, and try to choose it for you. I'm not I'm not certain that that will prove to be correct, but it's a, a very sage warning to think about the issues. Because I think that there is a very high risk for DAOs who are that loose that that some of the members could you know get caught up in a dragnet if only because the law has not caught up to what we should be doing about these corporate organizations yet. And I think the the answer that it depends is great from a variety of perspectives, especially when you think of what the DAO itself is doing. If the DAO is offering a marketplace if the DAO is just coordinating funds for efforts in Ukraine, right? Those are fundamentally different things and and vary in terms of the regulatory approach that governments would take in those regards and what laws could be broken by the DAO. You, You had a great article in Coindesk about whether a DAO should retain a law firm, and you addressed two practical problems that DAOs face. The first was how a DAO can enter a commercial contract, and the second one was how a DAO can engage and direct legal counsel to assist it in doing so. And, you know, those are two really important questions. And I was wondering what your, if you could just summarize what your findings were on those. Sure. So, you know, talking about DAOs have solved this problem to the extent that they have solved the problem in in a few different ways. Sometimes it's fairly straightforward. They say, you know, let's just have a governance vote. We want to hire a service provider. You know, we want, we want to hire uh, Jacob to do some coding and to refresh this aspect of our UI. So we vote to give Jacob fifty thousand dollars, and in in return, he pledges that he's going to do that, and 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 that that vote passes. That's something akin to a contract. I would say that sounds like a contract to me. Although of course it depends, it depends. But that's one way to go about doing it. But you do have to have some faith, right? Because if if Jacob says, "Hey, thanks for the fifty grand. I'm gonna you know take this and and uh, go to Aruba and and you know buy some nice jewelry for myself," what do you do about that? You know, how how do you enforce that contract? There are other ways. I'll get to that in a second. There are other ways to to contract. I mean, some DAOs have decided to appoint a or people or a committee to handle a certain aspect of of business affairs. So they can say, okay, you know, we are, we are the Jason Dow and we're going to vote to appoint Dan and Mix and Ali and Vani to be our legal committee. So they're Dow members, they're going to be responsible and they they can come out. Maybe they form a, a corporation. Maybe they form, you know, the, the Jason Dow legal direction company. And they use that company as the real life corporate form to hire a lawyer. And this this is both a contracting issue, but it also gets to this question about hiring lawyers, right? If a DAO directly hires a lawyer, let's say a DAO holds a, holds a community vote and says, you know, we vote to hire Jason Gottlieb to help us sue someone or defend against this lawsuit. That's great, but somebody actually 
physically has to be the person who is giving me instructions. They can't just hire me as a lawyer and then I can kind of go out and do whatever I, I want to do, right? There are certain questions that are quintessential client questions, whether or not to settle a lawsuit for how much, et cetera, that, that the lawyer would need guidance on. Unfortunately, it's hard to do that fully in public because that would waive privilege, right? So we, we, I can't pop into the forum and say, okay, guys, when you're considering whether to settle or not, here are all the considerations you will have. And here's my recommendation because, you know, our opposing counsel, or if we're, you know, facing up to the SEC, because they could pop in the chat and say, oh, you're, so that's your advice, huh? Thanks. Great. So you need to figure out a way to do things in a more privileged manner. And like I said, I, I have seen DAOs form a you know a legal response corporation where they appoint a person or people to form a corporation on the side and that corporation then is the client now the dao has to trust those people to effectively act on its behalf and sometimes you can do that by giving the legal response corporation a lot of money and just saying this is yours like you figure it out we trust you to do it or you can give them some money and, and you know maybe you have to go back to the DAO later. That also is going to depend on the case. But there are ways to structure it so that the DAO can have legal representation, even if it's through this indirect, without you know, risking blowing privilege or without you know hand, handing a lawyer an unclear set of instructions, which I think could could be very problematic. You know, you, you need someone to do even the prosaic stuff, right? You can't have a community governance vote and say, okay, we're going to hire Jason and we'll give him a hundred thousand dollar retainer. And that vote passes. Somebody actually has to pay the lawyer. And let me, let me repeat that for, for everyone who's listening to this. Somebody actually has to pay the lawyer. So, you know, it, it helps if there is a real person who is appointed to do that. Thank you, Jason. And the last, last question for you, Jason, just with regards to the early stage of your career, you know, there, there are a good deal of law students who listen to this and reach out to me and, and say they appreciate learning from lawyers such as yourself. Looking back, if you think about the post-law school stage of your career, is there anything that you would do differently or do again? So I, I, I started my career at Cleary Gottlieb, a big international law firm. I, I absolutely loved it. I still do. I, I still work with them regularly. I was an absolutely terrible junior associate. I had no idea what I was doing. My, my reviews in those first couple of years were, were almost universally negative and well-deserved. So what I would say is, you know, don't be alarmed for, for all of you junior lawyers out there if you enter the law firm world and realize, oh my Lord, I really have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what a lawyer is supposed to do. I mean, we go through law school and we kind of learn this very academic version of the law. And then you walk into a law firm and you have real clients who have real businesses and you have no idea what anyone's talking about ever. And you're not really sure what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, to be honest, I, I've been practicing now for you know nearly 25 years and I kind of still feel that way from time to time. So maybe that never goes away. But what I would say is this, take a deep breath. You're going to be fine. It takes a while to understand what your clients want you to be doing. It takes a while to understand the lingo, not just of the legal field, but of, of what your, your, your clients' fields. And I guess the, the best advice I can give is, is just listen. Really try to listen. Really try to absorb everything you can going on around you and see how how you can be helpful. Find ways where you can 
move the, the case forward, move the deal forward in, in large ways and small ways. And, and don't be afraid that you don't know what's going on around you. Because to be honest, the last few years in, in crypto and blockchain law, nobody's known what's going on around them. And it's, it's been some of the most fun years of my life trying to apply all of these new technologies to all of these old rules and see how it works. So embrace the panic. Embrace the fact that you don't know what's going on around you because everything you have is an opportunity to learn and to grow. And, you know, if you, if you think about stuff hard enough, at, at some point, you'll, you'll find that you actually do know what you're talking about from time to time. That's a fantastic and reassuring answer, Jason. So thank you so much. And thanks for joining me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Jacob, it's always great to talk to you. And I, I look forward to listening to the, the many more great podcasts and streams that you have to come. 